Well, if you have your Bibles, once again, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1271. If you're a guest with us, we've been working uh, through the book of Titus, and we began just a few weeks ago, and we're still in the early verses of the book, and we'll begin reading in verse 5 today. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject this morning, leaders worth following, leaders worth following. And I'll say at the outset, it's very humbling and challenging to preach uh, the passage that is before us today. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Gretchen and I began our 20th year of ministry with you, and I am mindful of a passage like this, and having lived before you for 19 years, you are very well acquainted with both my strengths and my weaknesses, both my patience and my impatience. And so I come to the text very humbled by what the Word of God says. And this sermon may feel more like teaching than preaching to you, but I would tell you that good preaching is also good teaching. And so we'll come to the text with those things in mind. This is what God's Word says, beginning in verse 5 of Titus chapter 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. After 29 years of ministry, I've learned some principles of leadership that have been formative in my life. Two of my favorites are the following. Everything rises and falls on leadership. And if you, are think, if you think you are leading and you turn around and no one is following you, you're not leading, you're just taking a walk. As we come to the first major section in the book of Titus, we find Paul giving his young partner in ministry formative instructions in leadership as he strives to make the churches in Crete orderly, healthy, and lovely. But you will notice in the passage that we've just read, there is no mention of structures, no mention of marketing strategies, no mention of surveys to find out what the church members wanted, no mention of CEO manuals. Instead, what you find is a list of qualifications and instructions for church leadership. 
You see, friends, God's standard for leadership in the church is high. In fact, God believes the leadership of the local church is so important that he addresses the subject in detail four different times in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 7. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. Now the emphasis in this passage before us falls on a leader's personal character and theological competency. You see, God is more interested in who a leader is than what a leader can do. For the skills of leadership are directly connected to the character of the leader. And that's why there's an urgent need in the 21st century church for the careful instruction and application of the biblical principles of church leadership. Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Sem Seminary, says this. Today, as always, there is a tremendous need for good, godly leadership in the church. We need men who, by their integrity of life, their maturity in Christ, competency in theology, and authenticity in ministry, gain the allegiance of a congregation that knows the love and soul of their shepherd. They trust him, a trust that must be earned and not demanded, to provide and protect, to feed and lead, to teach and tend to their spiritual needs. The great need of the hour is biblical, godly shepherds. And contrary to what some leadership experts say, we are shepherds. We are not ranchers or managers or corporate heads out to raise money or build buildings or draw crowds and measure up to the world's criteria for success. End quote. So if you're a leader in the church this morning, these verses show you the kind of leader that you should be. You should pray these verses over your life on a regular basis. If you're not a leader, these verses show you the kind of leadership you should expect in your church. And you should pray on a regular basis that your leaders would be like this. Here is what we should look for in a leader. And here is what we should aspire to as leaders. And here is what we should pray for our leaders. And so may God give us leaders that are worth following. Would you notice in the text with me this morning, first of all, the call for leaders worth following? We'll notice it in verse 5 and at the beginning of verse 7. And in verse 5, Paul begins with the priority of elders. And this is what he says to Titus. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Now, this verse suggests that Paul and Titus had actually been involved in a joint missionary effort on the island of Crete. But for unknown reasons, Paul left Crete before the churches there were fully organized. So Titus is charged by Paul to finish what was left unfinished. And his main task, according to verse 5, was to put what remained into order. 
This phrase uses medical terminology. It's where we get our words orthodontics and orthopedics. It literally means to thoroughly set straight further. The same way an orthodontist would straighten out crooked teeth, and the same way an orthopedic surgeon would set or splint broken bones. And as you study the book of Titus, you find that Paul charged Titus with the task of correcting and setting straight certain doctrines and practices that were in the churches in Crete. And so Paul's charge to Titus here in verse 5 emphasizes the priority of elder leadership. And it should be a priority because most of the unsolved problems in a local church can be traced to a deficit in the leadership of that church. For friends, if the leaders of the church are unsound, then the rest of the church will be greatly affected. If there is no leadership in the church, you have a church that is in chaos. If you have overbearing leadership in the church, you have a church that is crushed by its leaders. But if you have biblical leadership in the church, the church will thrive. The church will be orderly. The church will be healthy. And so Paul, in his call for spiritual leadership, places a priority on elders. In the middle of verse 5, he moves from the priority of elders to the placement of elders. And he says that Titus is to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, many scholars believe that there were at least 20 towns in Crete. And we don't know if every one of those towns had an established church, but this text shows many of them did. And each of these churches needed leaders. And so verse 5 tells us that Paul directed his young protege Titus to select, train, and appoint other mature leaders who could care for all of these churches in Crete. The word appoint that he uses means to set down, to establish, or to arrange. And the word directed means to do this thoroughly. Thoroughly arrange, thoroughly set down, thoroughly establish this leadership structure in the church. This was Paul's pattern in all of his ministry. He would go into a new area and minister the word of God. And he would lead men and women to Christ. He would disciple them and nurture them and mature them in their faith. And then he would provide them with loving, godly leadership before he left. There's an example of this in Acts chapter 14, verses excuse me, 21 to 23. And the Bible says, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. And they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They appointed elders in every church. Now you'll notice, both in the passage that I read to you from the book of Acts, 
and in Titus chapter 1, that these verses emphasize that Paul appointed a plurality of elders, a plurality of leaders in every congregation, meaning more than one. And so then you ask the question, why? Why a plurality? And I'll give you Alistair Begg's answer. For failure to follow the principle of plurality opens the church to popes. In other words, there is safety in a plurality. There is safety in numbers in the leadership. And I would say to you that, it, that in a day in which the celebrity culture has infiltrated the church like never before, the simple practice of having more than one leader guards and protects the flock. So he moves from the priority of elders and the placement of elders to verse 7 and the purpose of elders. And look at what he says at the beginning of verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward. Now i got to teach you a couple things. There are three words in the New Testament that are used interchangeably to describe the same people. They're used to describe elders. And in your English translation of the Bible, you will often come across this word, the word elder. It, in the Greek, it is presbyteros. It's where we get the word presbyterian. And it refers to one's maturity. It literally means hair on the chin. And so an elder is to be someone who is mature. The second word that is used in our English translations is the word overseer. And it's where we get the word episcopalian. It's the word episkopos in the Greek. It literally means to lead, to oversee the congregation, to watch over it and to take care of it, to protect it, to promote its spiritual well-being. So an elder is to be spiritually mature with hair on the chin. And notice it didn't say hair on the head. And an elder is to be an overseer. They are to protect and lead and oversee and organize and promote the spiritual well-being of the flock. And then the third word in our English translations is the word shepherd. In the Greek, it's poimen. It literally means to feed and to care. Now, all three of these words, elder, overseer, shepherd, they're used interchangeably in the New Testament to describe the same people, the elders, the leaders of the church. The best example I can give you of this is in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4. And here's what Peter says, and I'll point out the words to you as I go along and how they're used interchangeably. So I exhort the elders, presbyteros, among you, as a fellow elder, presbyteros, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd or poimen, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, episkopos, not under compulsion, but willingly, 
as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That's an elder. They're spiritually mature. They oversee and they feed and shepherd and care for the flock. Now notice in verse 7 of Titus chapter 1. Paul says to Titus that these functions of an elder, their maturity, their oversight, and their feeding are a stewardship. Do you see it? Eldership is a stewardship. The steward was the man whom the wealthy master would put in charge of his household or his business. It was a position of trust. And in this context, the elders are to manage and steward the affairs of God's church as those who have been entrusted by God and as those who will be held accountable by God. Eldership, leadership in the church is a stewardship. Listen carefully to me. And this stewardship is tied directly to the Bible. For leadership in the church is leadership by the Bible. And if you have leaders in the church not leading you with the Bible, you don't have biblical leaders in your church. It's a stewardship from God. It is not the leader's job to employ the best business practices in the church. The church is not a business. It is not the leader's job in the church to see how much they can make the church look like the world so that the world would want to come to the church. The leaders of the church are to lead the church with the Bible. That's it. It's a stewardship. And leaders carry out their functions by teaching the church the scriptures. And friends, you will know that I and the other leaders of this church have stopped loving you when we stop teaching you the Bible. You won't have to wonder if I don't love you anymore. If you see me stand behind this sacred desk and not open God's word and give it to you directly the way he says it, you can know on that day I stopped loving you. You should expect leadership from the Bible. And as stewards, elders must be faithful. They must be good stewards of everything that God has put into their trust because they will give an account to God for everything he's charged them with. Listen to Hebrews 13, 17. This verse puts fear and trembling in me. And listen, this verse shows how the relationship should be between the elders of the church and the people of the church. And it should put fear and trembling in you as a church as well. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. 
For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Did you hear that? The leaders of the church will give an account to God on the day of judgment for every single soul that he has entrusted to their care. Notice, he didn't say person. He described them as a soul. And why would he do that? Because that's the part of your life right now that will last forever. That's the weight. You have a soul that will last for all eternity. And it will either live in heaven with God or in hell with the devil. And every single leader of the church is going to give an account for every single one of those souls in the church to God. That's the weighty responsibility of the leaders. I told you there's a weight to the church. Do you know what the weight to the church is? It's the latter half of the verse. Listen to it. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Let the leaders lead you with joy and not with drudgery or groaning, because if they lead you with groaning and drudgery and defeat and discouragement, there's no profit in it for you. You've lost it. You've lost the blessing and the benefit of leadership in the church when it becomes a groaning to the leaders of the church to lead you. Let me just put it on the bottom shelf. Don't make their job so difficult. Don't make it so difficult. So let me give you some reminders in verse 5 in the beginning of verse 7. Every single leader is responsible to God for their leadership. And all of us are responsible to the leadership of Jesus. And it is important that every church understand this biblical principle of leadership. And the health of the church depends upon qualified leadership. So leadership in the church is an elder, it's an overseer, it's a steward. These are the words Paul uses and tells Titus to appoint these kind of leaders in the church. And these words make this position of leadership a weighty responsibility. Now... We not only see the call for leaders worth following, let me show you secondly, and relax, I'm only getting through a couple more phrases today. The character of leaders worth following. These verses call for the self-examination of every elder, and for every elder to seek by the grace of God to be the kind of leader that God calls him to be. Additionally, these verses are a call for believers in the church to make sure that the right kind of leaders are appointed to leadership in the church. And so then that begs the question, doesn't it? What kind of men should the church set apart for eldership? What kind of men does God want in this office? Here's the first qualification. It is found... At the beginning of verse 6, it's the phrase above reproach. If anyone is above reproach. That phrase means blameless. It does not mean sinless. It does not mean perfection. It does not mean having a pristine past. 
it refers to someone who is not called into a question or called into account. It speaks of one who is not liable to accusation or question as to his personal character or integrity. It's a general assessment of a man's maturity and his reputation. Is this a life that is worth copying? Is this man's life worth following? Is it a model and a pattern of a man of God no one can accuse, no one can charge, no one can question with any degree of credibility? It's both the way this man lives and what this man believes in agreement. John Calvin said it means that they're not marred by disgrace. Paul thinks this first qualification is so important. He mentions it again in verse 7. Do you see it? Look at verse 7. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Now notice how he phrased it in verse 7. He doesn't just say above reproach. He says they must be above reproach. It means that this qualification is essential. It's not optional. This qualification relates to the leader's life both inside and outside of the church. How he conducts himself in the community, in the neighborhood. How he conducts himself at the restaurant when his food is cold. How he conducts himself at the dry cleaners when his clothes aren't cleaned correctly. How he conducts himself in the grocery store where he shops, where he buys gas. Inside, outside the church... This man must be above reproach. Now listen carefully to me, church. To understand everything else that Paul says is to filter it all through this qualification. This qualification sums up all of the other qualifications. Or another way to think about it, all of the other qualifications line up under this one. This man must be above reproach in his marriage. He must be above reproach in his parenting. He must be, must be above reproach in his discipline. On and on down through the list. And so Paul is telling us at the outset that candidates for eldership must be men of unquestioned integrity, of unimpeachable, unirreproachable character. It must exist in their lives. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 that we are to remember our leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, and consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Why should the leaders be above reproach? Because you, the church, are to imitate their way of life. You're to follow their lead. And if they're not living right, and you follow them, you're not going to live right. Above reproach. It sums up everything else. Now I'm going to give you one more, and we'll conclude with this one this morning. After he gives above reproach in verse number 6, he moves into family qualifications. And he says that an elder must be the husband of one wife and that his children are to be believers and not open to the charge of debauchery 
or insubordination. And with these qualifications regarding the family, Paul is teaching us that the family is the proving ground for leadership in the church. That the way a man leads his family will tell you a lot about how he will lead God's family. And if a man fails to take responsibility in his home, he will fail to take responsibility in the church. If a man is domineering in his home, he will be domineering in the church. Paul said it this way regarding these qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. He must manage his own household well with all dignity. He must manage his household well with all dignity. The word well means excellently. His leadership in the home must be morally and practically good. It must be visibly good. The man must lead his family well that his leadership in the home should be well-being to his wife, and it should be well-being to his children. And if it's not well-being to his wife, and if it's not well-being to his children, it won't be well-being for you. And he's to do it with all dignity. That means that he's to be courteous in his leadership. He's to be humble in his leadership. He is to be competent in his leadership. He is to be respectful in his leadership. He is to be stately in his leadership. I would say it to you this way. The church in the 21st century has lost the idea of statesmanship in the church. That the leaders of the church should be statesmen for the church. They should be humble. They should be courteous. They should be respectful. They should be competent. They should be dignified in how they lead. And if they're not bringing those qualities to bear in their home, they're not going to bring those qualities to bear in the church. And Paul says it's to be with all dignity. It means the man's manners, his speech, his interaction, his respect towards others. Here's my translation of it all. The man sets the temperature in the home. And if he's not leading right, the temperature gets too hot way too fast. And if he brings that kind of temperature in the home, he'll bring that kind of temperature to the church. He's to be dignified in his leadership. An elder must be a responsible Christian husband. He must be a responsible father. He must be a responsible household manager. He must have the reputation of providing for his family financially. Listen to me, men. That's the easy part, financially. He must have the reputation for providing for his home emotionally more difficult, spiritually more difficult. That's the kind of qualifications that are demanded in the home, and it's the kind of qualifications that are demanded in the church. Would you listen to this quote by Tim Chester that is so powerful regarding this issue? In the West, we have a generation of men who want to live and are encouraged to live as perpetual children. I agree. It is easy 
to aim to avoid responsibility rather than bearing it, to follow instead of leading in our homes. Listen, to want the benefits of married life while retaining the benefits of singleness. So, we need to tell ourselves to grow up. And we need to encourage each other to grow up. Our families and our churches need us to lead our families to take initiative in the church and to serve in our neighborhoods. Our families and our churches need us to be striving to live like Christ. This is what it means to be a man. Do you hear that, men? This is manhood. Not video games. Not shirking responsibility. That's ease. It's a call for men to be men and to grow up. It's not about macho posturing. It's about taking responsibility so that others will flourish. Well, don't you love that? That's what it means to be a man. You take responsibility in your home. You take responsibility in your marriage. You take responsibility in your parenting. You bring that responsibility at the church. And everyone that's touched by your leadership, are you listening? Flourishes. That's it. That's what it means to be a man. And I say that to you boldly and unapologetically, whether you agree with it or not. You have the right to be wrong this morning. <laughs> now, how does this understanding of family leadership take root? Look at verse 6 again. Got your Bible open? In his marriage, he's to be the husband of one wife. This is the second qualification, by the way. He's to be above reproach, and he's to be the husband of one wife. This is how important this qualification is. He's to be above reproach as a husband of one wife. Now, notice the text carefully. I'm only saying this in passing just to clear up any confusion and false teaching that is rampant in the church. The gender of the language in this verse is masculine. It means that elders and pastors are men. You say, well, I go to a church with a female pastor. I say to you, based on the authority of God's word, you don't have a pastor. You don't have a pastor. Pastors are men. Not because I said so, but because God said so. That's the way it is. If you don't like it, deal with God about that. That's his qualification, not mine. It's, it's hard to fulfill the qualification of a husband of one wife when you're a woman. Now, let me be clear. Paul is not addressing singleness in this text. He's not saying that an elder has to be married. If an elder has to be married, then there's no place for Paul to be an elder or for Jesus, the head of the church, to lead. So he's not addressing singleness. He is also not addressing Polygamy. Polygamy is clearly forbidden in the New Testament, and this is not Paul's point. He is not addressing a husband with more than one wives. That's not the issue. The New Testament is clear. You can't have more than one wife. It's wrong. Number three, 
He's not saying that a widower cannot be an elder. It is perfectly acceptable for a widower to remarry. So he's not disqualifying them. Some say he's talking about divorce. I say to you that this is not an explicit reference to divorce, or Paul would have mentioned they can't be divorced. Though I think the understanding of divorce bears weight in the meaning of this qualification. This is what I mean. If it's an unbiblical divorce, I think the elder is disqualified. You see, the New Testament teaches us that divorce was rampant among both Jews and Gentiles and that God hates divorce. And out of his grace, he graciously permitted divorce under two circumstances. The adultery of a spouse and when an unbelieving spouse leaves and abandons a believing spouse. So if an elder is divorced, an elder must meet the biblical qualifications for divorce, as well as the overarching qualification of being above reproach. He is to be above reproach in his marriage. One commentator said, the point is not how often can one be married, but rather how one conducts himself in the marriage. So here's the literal translation of a husband of one wife. He is to be a one-woman man. This is a man. Are you listening, church? This will help us, all of us, in our marriages. This is a man who is in love with his wife. This is a man who is committed to his wife. This is a man who is devoted to one woman, and that woman is his wife. It refers to his inner life as well as his outward sexual purity. Because here's the reality. You can be married to one woman and not be a one-woman man. And there may be some of you men in this room this morning. You're married to one woman, but you're not a one-woman man. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't even need to explain it any further. You know. It's highly possible. This qualification means whether a man has a faithful track record in his marriage, whether he is respected and honored in the church and the wider community for his marriage. Paul is referring to a man who does not flirt with other women. Paul is referring to a man who is not on the hunt or the prowl for another woman. Paul is referring to a man who is not ensnared in the cords of pornography. That acceptable sin. Like, since when did you think that was acceptable? That you're being faithful to your wife while you're looking at pornography. Are you kidding me? This man does not engage in inappropriate conversations. He doesn't engage in inappropriate emails. He doesn't engage in inappropriate text messages with a woman who is not his wife. He doesn't go to lunch with a woman who is not his wife. He doesn't follow inappropriate Instagram accounts. He doesn't watch inappropriate YouTube channels. 
He is the one who grabs the remote and turns the channel when something inappropriate comes on the TV. This is a one-woman man. And this picture of a man being faithful to his wife is set forth powerfully all throughout the Bible, specifically in the book of Proverbs. Listen to Proverbs chapter 5, verses 15 to 20. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Do you need me to explain that to you? Who's the cistern? Who's the well? Your wife. Your wife. Not your phone. Your wife. Drink from that well. Listen to what he says next. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? No, they should not. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Why? Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. See, he's older and he's looking back on his life. Life, and he's looking back on his wife, and since I'm kind of in the middle age range, I think maybe he's middle age. He's looking back, and he's thinking about his young bride and how they've changed through the years together and how they're starting to look like each other because that's what old married people do. They look like each other, right? And he's looking back, and he's saying, this is the bride of my youth, and I rejoice in her. Oh, I love her more than I ever have. Like, I'm running out of ways to describe to her how much I love her now. And I'm rejoicing in that. That's the way it's supposed to be, men. That's it. I rejoice with the wife of my youth. He's not done. She's a lovely deer and a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Literally be drunk on the love of your wife. Like, you should be staggering around the house. You're in such love with her. Can't even walk a straight line because you're so intoxicated and enraptured with the love of your wife. Oh, I'm telling you. I'm telling you. If you loved like that and lived like that, your home would be different. It would. Verse 20, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Why should you do that? In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 to 33, he asks a series of questions and issues a stern warning to emphasize his point. Listen to what he says. Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? No. No. Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? No. So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. He who commits adultery lacks sense. Do you hear it? When you do that, you lack sense. You're showing yourself to be a fool. And he who does it destroys himself. Utter devastation is the consequence of not remaining faithful in your marriage. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. 
And yet, with all of these stern warnings, we act like we can play the temptation game and not get burnt. You're deceiving yourself. You're, according to Scripture, I'm quoting Scripture, you're lacking sense. So you know what Paul says about this? He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. Don't destroy it with your phone. Don't destroy it with the computer. Don't destroy it with the flirting at the office. It's not worth it. Oh, you think it might be greener, you're going to find it's astroturf. So Christian husbands are to be faithful to their wives, and in this, the elders are to take the lead. Now listen, I'm, I'm bringing this to application and, and conclusion. And, and the rest of my notes, I'm, I'm going to read a lot of it because I want it specific. I wrote it out specifically. I want it specific. So don't tune out on me yet. I still have some time. That means that the elders are to be the pattern of marital purity and marital maturity in the church. Marriage carries with it such exacting responsibilities and it reveals so much about a person. It serves as an excellent barometer of a man's true inner character. And how a man conducts himself in his marriage will say a lot about how he will bear the responsibilities of spiritual leadership in the church. So let me give you four observations. Observation number one. An elder's love and leadership of his wife should picture Christ's love for the church. Paul says, I'm not going to read it this morning, but he says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33, that a husband's primary job in his marriage is to love his wife. He is to lovingly lead his wife. And Paul says that it should be a sacrificial love. He should be willing to die for her physically, and he should be willing to die to himself and do the dishes. Sacrificial love. He says it's to be a sanctifying love. That the way he loves his wife should make her look more like Christ as the years go by. That she, listen, she should love Christ more by the way her husband loves her. And it's to be a selfless love. He's to love her the way he loves himself, the way he cares for himself, the way he provides for himself. He should love and care and provide for and love her above himself. That's observation number one. Observation number two. Oh, this is important. Don't you tune out on me on this one. The way an elder loves and leads his wife should impact how all the other women in the church are treated. That if an elder is loving and leading his wife right, that should translate into the church. 
And the church should have a culture of honor, respect, dignity, protection, safety, and security throughout it. When we were transitioning to elder leadership in this church, I had a couple talk to me before they left the church because they were in disagreement of the decision. And they looked me in the face. I'll never forget it. And they said, don't you hurt the women. I want you to hear my heart this morning, friends. If women are being hurt in the church from the leadership of the church, you've got the wrong leaders. It's not that you have the wrong leadership model. You've got the wrong leaders. Every woman in the church, when the leadership is right in the church, should feel that she is honored, that she is respected, that she is protected, that she is safe, and that she is secure. And she should know that if there is something going on in the private parts of her life where she is in danger or she is really struggling, that her leaders would defend her and protect her and help her. And she should know that without question by the way they love and lead their own wives and bring that kind of atmosphere into the church. It's important. If you got a man who's showing disrespect to women in the church, if you got a man who is making women feel unsafe and unsecure and unprotected, you've got a problem in your leadership, and he needs to be removed. Observation number three. How an elder loves and leads his wife should serve as a challenge to the other men in the church with how they love and lead their wives. That's it. If he's to be above reproach in his marriage, he has to be able to speak with conviction and authority into the marriages in the church. And if he's not doing it at home, how's he going to speak it in the church? Observation number four. An elder should not only preach the gospel with his lips, he should preach the gospel with his marriage. The way he loves and leads his wife should image the way Christ loves and leads his church. And an elder's marriage should be a powerful picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, I pray that my marriage and the marriage of the other leaders in this church remind you of what Jesus did for you. That he died for your sins so that you wouldn't have to. And that he rose victorious from the grave so that he could have and save a people for himself. Because every single one of us are burdened with sin and trespasses and spiritual death. And we need the work of Christ to take the death in our lives and bring it to life in him. And so every time you see us loving And leading our wives, it should just say to you, Jesus loves you and leads you like that. Jesus died for you so you can live for him. He wants you to be his. Because that's the gospel. And it should be seen in our marriages. So, 
Would you pray for the marriages of your leaders? Would you pray for them? Do you know how hard it is to preach on a subject like this and have difficulty in the week leading into it? Men, would you today honestly examine how you're loving and leading your wife? And if you're not sure, would you be bold enough to get her alone sometime today and say, how am I doing? And then don't argue with her when she tells you. <laughs> Wives, would you examine how you're respecting and responding to your husbands? Men, would you, empowered by God's grace, strive to build a marriage that would meet the qualification of an elder? Would you strive to do that? There's a reason this qualification is in the Bible. Strive for it in all of your imperfectness with the grace of God being your energy and your strength to love your wife like this. And for those trapped in the cords of sexual sin and pornography this morning, would you hear the heartbeat of your pastor? Would you flee from it today? Would you go to someone after church and tell them you need help, that you need a life preserver, and let them give you one? And would you flee from it? Oh, friends, in a day when, when marriage... And what it means to be a man and a woman is under the greatest attack that we've ever seen. My prayer is that our church family and the marriages in our church and the families in our church would look exactly the opposite of the world. What a great time to picture the gospel through our homes. Let's do it together for the glory of God. Let's pray.